So the book of Joshua, chapter 5, we're going to start to read at verse 1. Let's listen to God's word. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. I'm going to pause there. Now, the BBC quiz show, Question of Sport, has been celebrating a very special anniversary this month. It's been on our TV screens for 50 years, and probably all of you have seen it at some stage, even if you're not into sport. I was thinking about this last night. I don't think I've watched Question of Sport in over 20 years. don't know if I've missed much in the past 20 years, and I don't know if the actual game show has changed much as well. One of the most famous rounds on Question of Sport is, what happened next? And what they do on this is they show you a sporting clip, a little video clip, some sporting action, and they let it run for a bit, and then they pause the action, and they ask the question, what happened next? And the tip for the game is, it's never the obvious thing that happens next. It's usually something quite unexpected. We're going to play the same game here this morning. We have paused our Bible reading, and we're going to ask that question, what happens next in the passage? Because the children of Israel have miraculously crossed through the, Reds, or the River Jordan, as we thought about in chapter 3 and 4 last week. 40,000 fighting men have crossed over, ready to go and ready for action. And as Kyle has already shared with us, and I've just read there in verse 1, the people who live in the land, the, enemy, the enemies, the Amorites and the Canaanites, they look at this miraculous event. They see the people walk because the waters have miraculously passed or parted. And there's 40,000 men standing on their side of the river. And they're overcome by fear. And their hearts melt within them. And in their heads, they know what's going to happen next. Their God must be the living God. Their God must be the real God. God is on their side. If he can part the waters, we have no chance. This isn't going to last long, and we are going to be on the wrong side of this battle. What's the obvious thing you would expect to happen next? What you expect to happen is the 40,000 men would charge forward, the enemy are frightened, and they would conquer the land really quickly. This would not be any kind of match. That's the obvious thing. But as I said, when it comes to what happens next, expect the unexpected. The 40,000 men cross over, and then they stop. And they don't go anywhere, and they don't move, and they stay there, paused as it is, for quite a length of time. Around about 10 days or so, they do absolutely nothing. And as the Amorites look on, and the Canaanites look on, they're thinking in their own heads, what is happening here? We thought our days were numbered. We thought we were going to be slaughtered really, really quickly here. And they're just staying put. And they're not advancing. And they're not attacking us. What is going on? What is going on is that God has other ideas for his people. God deliberately wants his people to stop. 
And God wants them to pause, and he wants them to take this time to spiritually prepare themselves, to spiritually prepare their hearts, to spiritually prepare their lives before they go forward and inhabit the promised land. You see, that's what God's interested in. Before these great victories that are going to happen in the next number of days, God wants to make sure that his people are spiritually right before him. So let's pick it up at verse 2, and let's find out exactly what happened next. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebreth Haroth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness in the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born in the way in the wilderness after them had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to the fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom they raised up in this, their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Amen. Now, every great military commander in the same situation, having come through the water, seeing that their enemies' hearts were melted, seeing that the enemies were frightened, would have given the order, let's go, let's attack, let's take momentum in this situation. Our enemies are demoralized. This is the time to move. Well, as we said already, God is in no rush. Before they claim the promised land, it's more important that God claims their hearts, and their hearts are right with him. And there's some key lessons in this chapter. There's actually some really key lessons for us to learn here this morning. So we sit here, not in the land of Canaan, about to head off to Jericho, but as we sit here, preparing ourselves spiritually at the start of the week, preparing ourselves to go out into a new week with spiritual challenges and spiritual battles. Some key le lessons here. Because I think sometimes as a church, we want to charge ahead. 
We want to get stuck in. There's lots to do, and there's lots to do in the Lord's name. And it's so easy as Christians just to be active and to be busy because there is so much to do for God. And sometimes God just needs to stop us. Sometimes we need to pause, and sometimes we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared within ourselves. There's three key lessons that we're going to see as we work our way through this chapter. Three keys to spiritual preparation. Three things that happened for the children of Israel, and three things that we need to bring into our lives to spiritually prepare ourselves as we go and live for the Lord, as we serve Him, as we minister, and as we live as Christians wherever God has placed us. The first thing we're going to see is a commitment, and really it's a recommitment of the people to the Lord. Then there's the remembrance of what God has done in the past. And then there's the submission to the one who is overall, the one who is our captain, the one who is our commander, Jesus Christ himself. Let's start with the first one we see in the first few verses, which is a commitment. And this commitment that the children of Israel made just on the, the banks of the River Jordan, after they crossed over, centered round circumcision. Now, circumcision in the Bible dates back to the time of Abraham. God told Abraham to do this to his, his family and his descendants from that point on. And really, circumcision was something very, very special for Abraham. It was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign of the covenant relationship that God had made with Abraham. Abraham was a chosen person. His family would be a chosen people. And they were brought into this special covenant relationship. And God on his side of the covenant, would make obligations to his people. They would be his people. He would love them. He would care for them. He would never leave them nor forsake them. And on the other side, Abraham and his descendants had covenant obligations. They were to live as God's people. They were to obey him. And so this circumcision was a, a mark that was put on his people. It was a sign of the covenant. It was a reminder of this special relationship they had with God. And every meal, when they got to eight days of age, was taken and was circumcised. It was an outward sign of a greater reality. It was a reminder that they were marked people. Children of Israel were marked. They belonged the real and the living God. It was the sign of the covenant. Now, this outward sign required an inward response. This physical sign required a spiritual response. And as God's special people, as God's covenant people, they were under an obligation to live as God's people. They were under an obligation to obey God and not to use their bodies for sinful purposes. And the things that they said, in the places they went, their sexual relationships, their conduct with other people. They were a marked people. And so they were under obligations to live as God's chosen holy people. And this circumcision, act of circumcision, had happened down to the generations of the children of Israel, but it stopped it when they came out of Egypt. Nobody had been circumcised for 40 years. Those 40 years of wandering the desert and why had they wandered the desert going around in circles for 40 years? It was due to the hard, disobedient hearts of God's people. They had forgotten that they were circumcised. They had forgotten that they were marked people and they had obligations to trust, to obey, and follow God. And instead of trusting God, the people had doubted, we're not able to do this. We're not able to enter the promised land. The people are too big. The people are too mighty. They didn't trust God. And so for 40 years, they wandered the desert, 
until all those people had died out. They had never truly submitted to God. And so they might have had an outward sign, but it hadn't become an inward reality. But that time now is over. All those people have passed away. And it's now time, as they've crossed the River Jordan, they've entered into the start of the Promised Land, it is now time for God's people to live again as God's special covenant people. And to make a mark as a physical way of expressing that they belong to God. They are under obligation as you step forward. Before you take Jericho, you need to be reminded, this is how you're going to live in the promised land as God's people. And so it's time to circumcise the males at this point. Verse 2 of chapter 5 describes it as the second time. Really, it's a recommitment. Circumcision was something that was done in the past. It's had a gap of 40 years. These people haven't been circumcised. Let's do it for the second time. Let's recommit ourselves to the Lord. Let's start again living as God's people. And so what this recommitment here in chapter 5 marks is a new beginning for God's people. They were reminded that they were a people chosen by God. They were a holy nation. And it was good for them to recommit their covenant obligations as they enter into the promised land. Now, circumcision, circumcision no longer applies for God's new covenant people, the church. We read about this in the New Testament. There was a dispute, a dispute that the Apostle Paul had to, to wrestle with and argue with people in the churches because there was a group in the early church called the Judaizers, and they wanted to bring in circumcision, circumcision for, for Gentiles, people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And their argument was, yes, you need faith in God, but you also need this physical sign, you need circumcision, and you aren't really the true children of God unless you have circumcision and faith. And the Apostle Paul argues with these people, says, no, no, no. Circumcision is no longer necessary. It is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the reason we don't need this physical surgery is because as Christians, as people who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah, in the Savior, something incredible has happened in our lives. Christ has performed a surgery on us. It's not an outward physical surgery, but it's actually an inward spiritual surgery. And so when we put our faith in Christ, something is cut away from us. The old man, the flesh, that sinful heart is cut away. And miraculously, God gives us something new. He gives us a new heart. We are a new creation. We've been born again with this new heart, with new desires, new desires that we never had before we trusted Christ. A hatred for sin and a love for Christ, and a love for righteousness. And so we read these words in the book of Colossians as, as Paul tries to explain it to the early church. It says, in him, that's Christ, so when you put your faith in him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual one made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. That flesh represents our old sinful ways by the circumcision of Christ. Let me read that again so you can take it in. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, that old sinful way, the way you used to be, by the circumcision of Christ. That is what Christ does to us when we put our faith in him. 
But when we have been circumcised by Christ, we are God's people. We are brought into a special covenant relationship. We're brought into the new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior. And as new covenant people, we're under obligations as well. And the obligations we have are, as people who have had that circumcision on our hearts, we need to live as God's people. We need to live as holy people. We need to live as obedient people. We actually need to live as the children of God. And so what we need to do spiritually, as believers, if you're sitting here this morning, you're a Christian, we need daily to commit ourselves to living as God's people. On a daily basis, we need to be putting off the old flesh, the old man, those sinful practices, the things that we used to do before we became God's people. We need to commit ourselves daily to holy, obedient lives. So let's pause this morning because it's good to stop at times and it's good to pause. And before we rush ahead, so before we rush ahead into this new week, let's just stop and let's just pause and let's examine our own hearts. Are there any areas of our life where the old sinful life has crept back in. Things that we're looking at, things that we're thinking about constantly in our minds, and we're allowing those thoughts to sit there. Are there things that are coming out of our mouth that should have been cut away? Are there things and places we're going and doing that as we examine our hearts, we are not living as the holy children of God. We're not living the obligations we have as people who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And so it's good to pause and examine our lives. And if we discover areas, and I'm sure there are areas in all of our lives, we need to deal with it. And we need to do whatever needs to be done to deal with it. If there's sin in our lives, constant sin that we're letting fester in our lives, we need to cut it off. We need to do whatever we need to do to put it to death. We need to ask for God's help on that. Maybe there's things that you need to stop doing. Maybe there's things you need to get rid of. Maybe there's relationships you need to break. You need to cut these things if you're going to live as your obligation as the chosen people of God. And need ask for God's help. And this morning, as you think about that, you need to confess that sin. You need to deal with that sin. And you need to commit yourselves, and I need to commit myself, to living as God's holy people. The second thing the people did here as before they went to fight at Jericho was they remembered, there was an act of remembrance. And that's another part of the nation's spiritual renewal. It was the observance of the Passover feast. It was an annual feast to Passover, a reminder of their deliverance from Egypt. It was a reminder of the great act of salvation in the Old Testament for the children of Israel, where God had brought the people out of slavery, had brought them through the Red Sea, and heading towards the promised land. But it hadn't been celebrated. It hadn't been celebrated for nearly 40 years. The last time the children had celebrated it was at Mount Sinai when they got the Ten Commandments. But over those 40 years of wilderness wanderings, no Passover had ever been 
celebrated. Do you know one of the reasons why it hadn't been celebrated? Because you could only celebrate the Passover if you'd been circumcised. And because the people hadn't been circumcised over that time, they were unable to celebrate the Passover. They'd missed out. Because the Passover was a covenant meal for God's covenant people. A reminder what God had done for them. And so before they moved forward, before they claimed the land, it was good for them to remember the mighty hand of God in the past. And they would eat this Passover and they would think back a generation where God had moved in Egypt miraculously. And they'd been set free from their bondage. And God had delivered them away from their enemies. And now as they faced new enemies, this reminder of the past would encourage them. It would fill their hearts with encouragement and joy as they looked forward to what lay ahead because it's good to remember the mighty acts of God in the past. It also tells us that the day after they had the Passover, the manna stopped, that miraculous food that God had given to them over their wilderness wanderings because they had no food. God had given them bread miraculously every day from heaven and it stopped. And the reason it stopped is they were now able to eat the produce of the land. They were in the promised land. And so the miraculous provision ended because it was no longer needed. And that wasn't a sad thing because as they ate the produce of the land, it reminded them that God had kept his promise. Years and years before, God said he would set his people free and he would bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Beautiful food, beautiful produce. This manna, yes, it kept them going, but it was nothing in comparison to the wonders and the might of the, the food that lay ahead in the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. Unlike circumcision, this Passover was no longer needed either. It's no longer needed now. It was needed then as a reminder. It's no longer needed now for us. We don't celebrate the Passover here in church. Like circumcision, it is gone. It's been replaced by something greater. What we celebrate today is the Lord's Supper. And when we take the Lord's Supper as believers, when we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we remember a greater act of deliverance. Yes, God taking the people out of Egypt was the great act of deliverance in the Old Testament, but we have something greater. We have a greater celebration or salvation to celebrate. We have a greater Passover lamb, greater lamb that was sacrificed, whose blood was shed so that we could be saved and set free. His name is Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross for our sins so that we could be set free from set free from the bondage of our sins set free from the judgment and the punishment we deserve and set free to live as the children of god so we celebrate here in the church and so i want to invite you to come later to the lord's supper our lord's supper tonight will actually be in our evening service so on the last sunday of the month we take some time in our evening service to celebrate to think back and to remember that great act of salvation so come and join us tonight. Come and join us as we spend time remembering what Christ has done for us. It's actually a command that Jesus Christ gave us. He said, this do in remembrance of me. Why did Christ command that? Because he knew it was for our spiritual benefit. It's good to stop and it's good to remember this mighty act of God. To think about our God of grace and our God of love. And our God of mercy, this God who stepped in to save us 
and to set us free and to call us as his children. And it's a great way to spiritually prepare. We do it on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, this week that lies ahead of us. We come to the Lord's Supper. And what happens when we come there with the right heart? We're spiritually nourished. Yes, a little bread, a bit of bread might be small, and the wine might be small, and yet we are spiritually nourished. We're spiritually fed at the Lord's table. We're spiritually refreshed as we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so can I encourage you? Can I encourage you if you're a believer? Make the Lord's Supper a priority. Make it a spiritual priority in your life. Join us tonight as we observe it because it's good to remember what God has done. The third thing that we see here in this chapter is we see submission. The Lord had promised to be with Joshua. We saw that in, actually in chapter one. He said, I will be with you as I was with Moses in the past. And now at the end of chapter four, five, God reaffirms that he's going to go and be with Joshua as he moves forward into the promised land. And he reaffirms this promise in a really personal, unexpected way. Let me read verses 13 through to 15 again. The last verses of the chapter. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And what happens next, this would definitely be the unexpected thing. You don't expect this to happen in the story. Joshua looks out, he looks at Jericho, and there's a soldier standing in front of him. Sword is drawn. He's unsure who this person is at the start, and so he asks the question, basically, are you a friend or a foe? And he's informed that this person is the commander of the Lord's armies. Now, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, the Lord's army is an army of angels. That's who this person is. He's the commander of the army of angels. And so with this response, Joshua knows in his own mind who this is. This is a divine messenger. And so what he does is he falls on his face. That's an interesting thing in the culture of the day. If you fell on your face in front of somebody, you were submitting to them. You were acknowledging that this is somebody greater in your presence. And so he submits to him. Yes, he is the commander. He is the leader of the children of Israel but he realizes that he's in the presence of somebody greater. He falls to his face and he starts to worship him. Now, who was this divine visitor? We're not given specific details apart from he's the commander of the Lord's army. What we probably have here, though it doesn't give us the specific details, is what's called a theophany. A theophany is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord himself. We know that Jesus Christ came into the world in the New Testament, born that first Christmas, came in flesh. But there are a number of occasions where the Lord seems to appear in the Old Testament. It's happened before with Abraham, when he is a divine messenger. We think about the divine messenger who wrestled with Jacob as he was traveling along one night. We think of the story later on in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. The king looks on and he sees a fourth person. 
this divine visitor, helper. These are, we think, Theophany's appearance of the Lord to come alongside his people. And what we have here echoes the burning bush when God himself appeared to Moses because he's told to do exactly the same thing. He's told to take off his sandals, his shoes, take them off his feet because the land he's standing on is holy ground. There's a holy visitor here. It seems that God himself has appeared. Importantly, he's appeared as a commander who's going to fight with him before he heads off into battle. What a comfort that would have been to Joshua. There's enemies that lie ahead of him. There's fierce battles to be fought. But the Lord himself is going to go with him. And the Lord himself is going to go and fight with him. Now, as I said, Joshua is the leader of the children of Israel, but he realizes that he's in the presence of the true commander. That's why he falls to his face. And falling down is this act of submission. Another key lesson in this passage. Killer key lesson is we spiritually prepare ourselves to live this week as followers of Jesus Christ. We are not in control. We are not in command. There is one who is greater than us. There is one who is the head of the church, and his name is Jesus Christ. And as we face spiritual battles, it's reassuring to know that he's also promised to go with us. And so as you go into the school classroom this week, or the university context, or the work environment, or back into a home, or back into a neighborhood where there's spiritual challenges and maybe opposition, as you go in, you don't go alone. There's one who's promised never to leave you nor forsake you. And he is our spiritual commander. And so as we spiritually prepare ourselves for this week that lies ahead, we need to fall down. We need to fall down in our minds and our hearts and submit ourselves to the one who is our commander. I studied uh, theology at the Irish Baptist College, and the motto of the college is um, three words in English. I'll give it to you in English so you can understand it. And the motto of the college is, Lord, I follow. It's a great motto. It's a great motto as you head off into ministry that you've been trained, to, trained for. You don't go as the boss. You go as somebody who's following your commander, the Lord. And wherever he leads and wherever he guides, that's where you follow. But it's not just a good motto for life for people who are heading out into ministry or mission field, people who've been trained at the Baptist College. It's a great motto for all of our lives if we are believers. Lord, I follow. What does that motto actually express? It actually expresses some submission. So often we want to be the captains of our own life. Let's charge ahead here. I think this is best. And so often we go off on our own and then we wonder why things are a disaster. And as we head off, a good prayer to make is, Lord, I follow. Wherever you lead, help me to follow. Guide my life. Help me to submit where I need to submit in areas of my life. I am not the boss. Lord, I want to follow you because your way is the best. Now, submission is a dirty word. Submission in our culture and society is seen as weakness. Be your own boss. 
You know, follow your own heart. That's disastrous advice, okay? My heart is flawed. My heart is sinful. If I follow my own heart, I am going to end up in a mess really, really quickly. Submission is not weakness if you're following the right person. And actually, when we submit to the Lord, we're actually submitting to a path of spiritual blessing because Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. So Lord, I want to submit to you and I want to follow you and I want to try and be the captain of my own life. Instead, I want to submit, follow you. And as we finish here this morning, I want us to take some time and pause. We're not going to have a lot of time here. And so I'd encourage you maybe to take some time later in the day or this week to do this as well. But let's take some time now and a bit of quietness just to prepare ourselves spiritually for the week that lies ahead. Let's commit ourselves to the Lord. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you know these truths and you know all about them, but you've never done anything. Maybe you need to commit yourself to the Lord for the first time and trust Jesus as your Messiah and start to live as one of his people and know the blessings that come from that. But many of you are believers, and it's a good time just to recommit yourself. Think about areas in your life where sin has crept in, where the old flesh that shouldn't be there, things that need to be cut away, things that need to be put to death. Maybe in the quietness now, you need to confess some of those areas of sin and recommit yourself and say, Lord, help me to live as your child this week, to be holy because you're holy. So let's take some time to commit ourselves. Let's take some time to remember. Think about God's great love for us and that great act of salvation, Jesus Christ dying for us, and give thanks. Now, there'll be more time to do that this evening, so come back and join us tonight as we remember. And then submit and say, Lord, I follow this week. Help me not to be the captain of my own life. Charging ahead, but I want to follow your way. You're a great guide. You're wise and you're good. Help me to submit to you. Submit to what your word tells me to do, your will that's revealed in your word. Help me to submit to it, to live by it and follow it. And thank you as I submit to you, knowing that your presence is with me, helping me every day. So let's take some time in silence, just to stop, just to pause, and just to spiritually prepare our hearts what lies ahead this week. Let's have some silence and then I'll pray.